0: Well, today we return to our sermon series in Philippians titled Growing with Joy. God's desire for his children is that we would experience two seemingly opposed realities in our lives. That we would simultaneously grow in Christian maturity, which is hard, and that we would grow in joy. If your Bibles are open, or perhaps you'll just remember this, you'll notice in that in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, um, Paul breaks from what was kind of like a missionary report back to the sending church in Philippi. He breaks with this report to exhort the church there to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember that? That they would understand that suffering is part of the Christian experience. That they are to consider others more significant than themselves. They are to look to Christ who humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And they are to shine as lights in a dark and twisted world. And then Paul finishes that section with these words in uh, chapter 2 verse 17. They're right before our passage which means they're important for us today. He says this, remember? Even if I am being poured out. As a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Paul was glad to pour out his life as a sacrifice alongside the sacrifice that was going on in this church in in Philippi. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul kind of returns to that, that missionary report being sent back to the church in Philippi, and he points us to two wonderful examples of Christians who have lived poured out lives, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul wants the Philippians to appreciate the people who serve the church so faithfully, and he wants to encourage the church to have the right role models to emulate. The same is true for us too. Today we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus so that we may learn what is worthy in them so that we may seek it in ourselves as well. Our passage is Philippians chapter 2 verse 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God. If you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these, these words from scripture to us. Um, we, we hear them with, with um, ears that, that are uh, in similar circumstances. Uh, we need to have role models that model for us what it looks like to pour out our lives for Christ and his church and his kingdom. Uh, help us to comprehend what you would have us to learn And more than that, to press it into our hearts, that we may live it out for you and for your glory, we pray. Amen. By the time John Stephen Akwari of Tanzania entered the stadium of Mexico City, most of the crowds in the stands had dissipated. There were only a few thousand left. Akwari was representing his country in the marathon at the Olympics in 1968, and he had injured his leg during the race. Um, The other runners left him behind, but he continued on. When Akwari entered the stadium for his final lap, um, the race had been over for more than an hour, and the sun was setting. His right leg was bandaged in two places, and he was wincing with every step. Upon seeing the solitary runner enter the stadium, the spectators began to clap as he hobbled around the track. And then as he stumbled across the finish line, holding his injured leg with both hands, the crowd roared. Filmmaker Bud Greenspan later asked him, he said, why did you do this? You were in such pain and you couldn't win. Greenspan recalls Akwari's reaction. (laughs) He looked at me as if I was crazy. Mr. Greenspan, I don't think you understand. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. Such was that man's devotion to his country. Today we meet two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are similarly devoted. We don't know nothing. We know nothing of their devotion to their country. Rather, Scripture tells us of their devotion to Christ and His work. Their stories serve as an inspiration for us, also, as we can devote ourselves to the work of Christ. Now, I'd like to propose that, on the one hand, their unwavering commitment was extraordinary. But on the other hand, it should be seen as ordinary. In Paul's day, this selfless devotion that we see in these two men was extraordinary. One of the prevalent approaches to life in Paul's day was Stoicism. And the famous Stoic philosopher Epictetus said these words. Um, He was born towards the end of Paul's life. So contemporary with Paul, he wrote, listen closely, here's what he said. Permit nothing to cleave to you that is not your own. Nothing to grow to you that it may give you agony when it is torn away. In other words, don't grow so tightly with other people that when the inevitable tearing away happens, agony occurs. And surely don't give yourself to a cause that is far bigger than yourself. Today, people live this way too. Don't get so connected to others. It might cost you. And yet, people will admire from a distance, from a distance, others who live big lives for noble causes. But they don't see it as normative. And isn't it true? Religion today is seen as a means of self-improvement. Not as an avenue for serving others. And even those within the church need correction that this passage presents. Churchgoers, though they wouldn't say it explicitly, can view church as a place where they come to be served by the pastors and by the staff. The resistance is usually veiled in churchy language, like, I just needed to be ministered to this morning. And in some small sense, it's true. However, they evaluate the building, the preaching, the music, the program, and the coffee. Coffee's pretty good here though, right? Uh, And they evaluate and they base things on how the church serves them. Paul confronts this resistance with a sound picture of the church. What Timothy and Epaphroditus model for us is the exact opposite. They willingly grow their lives into others no matter the agony to come. They live poured out lives in sacrifice to serve Christ and this local church. And as extraordinary as their commitment may seem, it is to be ordinary for the followers of Christ. Does not Christ call us to take up our cross and follow him? And to lose our lives in service to him so that we may what? Find our lives. The more we mature as Christians, the more we come to live Poured out lives for Christ's sake. This morning we're going to investigate what Paul writes about these two men, how they lived poured out lives in living sacrifices. First we're going to look at Timothy and then Epaphroditus. First, the poured out life of Timothy. Paul points to Timothy's genuine care for others and to Timothy's focus on serving the interests of Jesus Christ in the church. First, let me give you a timeline Paul planted the church in Philippi with the help of Timothy. Epaphroditus is a member of that church in Philippi. Both Epaphroditus and Timothy were with Paul as he was under house arrest, most likely in the capital city of Rome. Paul says he wants to send Timothy soon. But first he sends Epaphroditus with this letter. In verse 19, we see that Paul wants to send Timothy Timothy soon so that what? What does it say? So that I too may be cheered by news of you. Long before uh, telephones and instant messaging, news traveled slow. Paul loves his church. He longs to hear all the good news and all the good things that have been going on in the congregation. In verse 23, we see that Paul is holding on to Timothy until he finds out the verdict. Will he be found guilty and executed, or or will he, as he believes, be set free? As soon as the trial is concluded, um, Paul will send Timothy. Timothy will spend a brief amount of time in Philippi, and then he will come back for Paul. Paul says in verse 4, I trust in the Lord that that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul doesn't need Timothy to deliver the letter. Epaphroditus will have already done that. So why would Paul send Timothy if Paul's going to be coming shortly thereafter? It's because he cannot wait to get some news. He wants to hear what's been going on. My friends, there is nothing greater than genuine Christian community. We share together in the worst of sorrows and in the greatest of good news. I think I just made that word up. (laughs) Elsewhere, Paul writes what? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Is this not contrary to Stoicism? We are to grow into each other's lives in such a way that, that, that their joys become our joys and their sorrows our sorrows. Now back to Timothy. The first characteristic of his poured-out life is that he genuinely cares for others. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, at first reading, this sounds kind of like an indictment of other people rather than an endorsement of Timothy. Um, But when you look at the words in our English text, like him, that's actually one word in the Greek. It's a compound word, which means... Literally, like sold. I have no one like sold as Timothy. Paul is saying, You know, the only two guys that I can trust to send back are Timothy and Epaphroditus. The rest are immature, so much so that they look out for their own needs rather than the interests and needs of Christ. And isn't it true? We can appear caring on the outside when all along we're really just promoting our own. Self-interest. So one of the natural responses of those first readers in Philippi would have been to what? To question themselves. Am I like sold with Paul? Would Paul have maybe chosen me to send me with these words? And we should ask the same question today of ourselves. Am I like sold with Paul? Do I have genuine care for others? Evidently, Timothy cares about the welfare of the Philippians. In verse 21, Paul says, They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, which implies Timothy doesn't seek his own interests, but rather seeks the interests of Christ. A couple observations. Jesus has interests. He desires to see his churches flourish in Paul's day and in our day, too. And so here we see the second characteristic of Timothy's poured out life, his focus upon Christ and his church. My friends, our Lord is risen. He is in heaven, ruling over this creation. Christ continues to shepherd his churches around the world. And one of the ways in which Christ ministers to our needs is by bringing godly men and women who seek not their own interests, but the interests of Christ. When Epaphroditus and Timothy arrive, Paul can be sure that the needs of the Philippians will be looked into just as if Christ was there himself. My friends, Christ calls us to a genuine care and interest in each other. Timothy models it for us. How do we get this in our lives? I mean, I know we all are like, if we look at our own, as I look at my own soul, I'm like, I'm not the person I know I should be. I'm a pastor and I still don't love with the love of Christ. I've got so much room to grow. How do, how do I become a more kind and gracious and, 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 and interested person in, in others? How does that take place in my life? And how will it take place in your life? How do we develop genuine interest for each other? Timothy models it for us because, check it out, because Timothy is first interested in the things of Christ and because Christ is interested in the welfare of his church, therefore what? Timothy likewise is interested in the welfare of the churches that belong to Christ. This tells us that, that to care for people the way Timothy cared for people, we must connect with Christ. Do you remember earlier in chapter two, we read, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, have this mind among yourselves. You guys remember this, right? I know it's been a few weeks. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, talking about Jesus here, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Our Savior poured out himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In order for us to have a similar Christ-like interest in his people, Paul says what? He points us where? He points us to Christ. Understand this, our Lord is in no way stoical. It pleased him with the heavenly delight to grow himself into our pitiful estate, to unite himself to us in our sinfulness. He experienced agony for our sake by taking our sin upon himself, and he allowed himself to be broken and torn away in his death. Christ poured himself out on the cross so that our broken and self-absorbed lives may be restored in God's grace. Now, we become genuinely interested in the welfare of others when we meditate upon the Lord and His interest in us. Then, once humbled by the grandeur of God's grace towards us, we begin to look with empathetic eyes towards those in our congregation around us. Instead of thinking things like this, you ever thought this way? Ever thinking, I'm so tired of having to fix all of her problems. Instead of thinking that way, we begin to say, you know what? My Savior didn't just die for me. (laughs) He died for her. And my Savior is just as interested in her and her well-being as he is in me. And my Savior is just as patient with her as he is with me. Therefore, since my Lord is concerned with her welfare, so too I will be concerned with her welfare. See how the gospel enables us, and transforms us, and makes us into people who can truly be genuinely concerned for the others' well being. Now, to help us in this process, God gives us role models to follow. How is it that Timothy became such a great example of the poured out life? It's because he himself had a role model, Paul. Verse 22, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You know, in our postmodern world, most people in our society have abandoned the notion that there is one approved way of living life. Instead, it matters not how you live, just so long as you are the one who determines it. This is the exact opposite of how Timothy lived his life. In a sense, Timothy said to Paul, I give you authority to look into my life, to speak truth into my life, to look in upon me and transform me so that the life of Christ may be formed in me. How did Timothy grow into a man who lived not for his own interests? How did Timothy become so free in Christ that he poured out his life for Christ's sake? He had a spiritual father who discipled him. Verse 20 says that Timothy served alongside Paul in the gospel. They worked together, kind of like a father and a son. Picture this as they travel from church to church all the while, Paul was modeling for Timothy, um, how Christ loves and cares for the members of his body. Consider how many times Paul must have said words like these to Timothy. Oh, I know it's a long and dangerous trip, but remember this, my son, the Lord is with us. <laughs> or I know, I know, Timothy, that it doesn't seem like this person seems to appreciate all of the work that we've done for them. But remember this, I too forget the grace of my savior. And so I too can be patient with those who don't quite see all that we are doing for them. In St. Louis, I was mentored by a Reverend Doug Graham. He was the one who called me on staff at the church as a junior high youth worker when I was still running my computer business. He was the one who encouraged me to enter into seminary. He's the one who said that I would make a good church planter, even though I didn't know what that was at the time. He was the one who hired Leslie Schmidt and then officiated at our marriage. He is also the one who said, Mark, we're called to shepherd the sheep. So remember this, sheep bite. But he was also quick to say, but our good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep and so too must we. What I saw in Doug Graham was a man who loved the church, blemishes and all. And he modeled for me a love for the church, blemishes and all. Godly role models are important for our spiritual and our emotional growth. Among other things, they model for us genuine care for the interests of others. And they help us focus our lives upon Serving Christ in His church. Now, for the poured-out life of Epaphroditus. How come nobody ever names their kid Epaphroditus? There's a lot of Tims running around. It's hard to spell. Spell checker doesn't like it either. So, Paul points us to Epaphroditus's bravery. It's hard to say too, and his willingness to die for the sake of the gospel. Remember, Epaphroditus is one of the Philippians. He traveled um, from Philippi to, to where Paul is located in prison in order to give him a financial gift. See, prisoner, uh, prisoners in the Roman court system had to supply their own food, and in some cases, their own housing. And now Paul has sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter. And Paul's description of him shows the close relationship that was created in the gospel between the two of them. Paul calls Epaphroditus what? Brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Paul doesn't use military terms very often, but most likely he saw Epaphroditus as a wounded comrade in arms who needed to return home to rest. Paul considers him to be a fellow soldier for the sake of the gospel. So he calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Then he calls him also your messenger, your minister to my needs. In verse 26 and 27 tells us that, Epaphroditus became ill somewhere between Philippi and Rome, somewhere along his journey. And the church in Philippi found out about it some way. Perhaps someone in that traveling party returned to Philippi with the news. But know this, even though he was gravely ill and near death, Epaphroditus soldiered on. Paul is in Rome under the heavy weight of the trial before Caesar. Add to that, remember, some Christians in Rome were making life difficult for Paul. Add to that, Roman prisoners had to provide for their own food. Paul was vulnerable, dependent upon the charity of others. And then along comes this friend from Philippi, who was so alive in Christ that he was willing to die for Christ's sake. Someone who, though he became gravely ill, pressed on, saying, My church did not send me to start the journey, but to finish it. Reminds me a lot of Sam Ganges from the Lord of the Ring trilogy. Remember Sam, don't you? He's Frodo's sidekick and helper. And towards the end of the... Trilogy, Sam has sworn to travel with Frodo up to the, up to the formidable Mount Doom and he's, so that Frodo can carry the ring so that it can be destroyed in the fire. And the weight, if you recall, was almost too much for Frodo to bear. They only had enough provisions to at best make it to their goal where they wouldn't have enough to return or to go anywhere. They'd be, they'd be homeless and helpless, stuck in the midst of a, of a desert. There could be no return. Tolkien writes this. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam, to help Mr. Frodo to the last step and then die with him. Well, if that is the job, then I must do it. At one point, Frodo was in such dire circumstances. He was lying on his back and he was not moving. Tolkien writes, Sam stood beside him. Reluctant to speak, and yet knowing that the word now lay with him, he must set his master's will to work for another effort. At length, stooping and caressing Frodo's brow, he spoke in his ear. Wake up, master, he said. Time for another start. Frodo raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him. And then pitifully he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if I broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Epaphroditus could not carry the ring that Paul alone needed to carry. Paul alone would stand before the emperor and proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus could not carry the, Paul's burden, but he could carry Paul. The gift that Epaphroditus brought saved Paul's life. And Epaphroditus almost died to get it there. Verse 30, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I don't get Paul's words wrong. He's not denigrating their gift as if it was lacking in some way. No, the Philippians had committed greatly financially to support Paul. What they lacked wasn't a gift. What they lacked was a way to get it to Paul. And that was Epaphroditus who fulfilled that. So understand this. When Epaphroditus arrived on the scene in Rome, Paul's life was changed dramatically. I'm not insinuating that Paul wasn't strong in his faith, but isn't it true? There are times in our lives when no matter how heartfelt or earnest our prayers, no matter how strong our spirits can at times be, Are there not times when the only thing that brings us out of our sorrow and despair is the presence and encouragement of another brother and sister in Christ? This highlights a truth that is important for this congregation and every congregation. We all need the mutual support and encouragement of one another. We need to carry each other. Now, some of you are pretty well connected here at Grace Church. You've got a lot of friends here uh, that can walk through life with you. You feel cared for. You feel encouraged. And this is your testimony. But you yeah, also know that there's others in our body who at times feel lonely and alone. You feel as if you don't have anybody to stand in with you. You feel a great longing for a Christian friend to come and to bear some burdens with you, to share life with you, to, to care for you, to be genuinely concerned And to come alongside and and support you. You know, today uh, we welcomed new members into our body. They all took membership vows. And some of you are members here as well of Grace Church. And you took membership vows. You remember the fourth membership question that we had? The question was, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you know what one of the most important works in this church is? It's you all being the family of Christ for each other. It should be your intention that there should be not one member of this church you can say, you know, I feel lonely and alone and unsupported as I attempt to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. It should be the testimony of every member in this congregation that we're all investing in at least a few other members so that we're all ministered to and we are all ministering, every single one of us. It's not just about being a taker. We must be givers, too. This is who Christ is building us to be. That's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. Now, if the great apostle Paul... Needed Timothy and Epaphroditus, how much more do we need each other? Will you make a commitment today? Will you start asking questions as you look around this congregation? Who needs my genuine concern? Who needs to be befriended? Who needs help carrying a burden? And don't wait for the pastors and elders to do this work. Yes, you should hold us accountable. But it's the work of the body to minister to the body. We have roughly 200 people who call Grace Church home. If we're ever going to be tight-knit in the gospel, then we must all be the ones who live poured-out lives for each other. So we've looked this morning at two... Examples of uh, living the poured-out life. On the one hand, these examples are extraordinary. Paul says at the end of the passage, whenever we witness such selfless giving in the church, we need to receive and honor such people. But we also need to recognize that though this is in some ways extraordinary behavior, it is also to be the ordinary work of the Christian. My friends, the more we come alive to Christ here at Grace Church, the more ordinary it will be for us to live this way. Paul writes to the church in in Philippi, he says, I give you a man who is ready to die because he understood that when you seek first the kingdom of God, then God will add all things back to you. So members of Grace Church, Are you ready to die, to pour out your life in Christ? Let's pray. Father, it sounds daunting. For many of us, it sounds like going up Mount Doom to even attempt to love people as you've called us to. May we be reminded that this is a work of your grace in your people and that you're the one who gives us hearts that even desire this. And that, as you said earlier in this letter, you said that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. So, Heavenly Father, you have begun this good work in this church here. And we know that you will continue it on. We simply commit to that work today. We desire it in our lives. And we pray that you would change us sooner and quicker and with more love for our neighbors, we pray. Amen.